Klaatu, Verata, never mind, that joke's gotten old. This is Monster Kid Radio, episode number eight going out on Thursday, June 20th. I'm your host, Derek M. Cook, and I'll be joined shortly by Rich Chamberlain, the Monster Movie Kid, here in a few minutes as we continue part two of our chat about the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951, directed by Robert Wise. In case you couldn't tell in the last episode... Rich loves this movie, and with good reason. It's a solid film, and I think when I'm done recording this, I'm going to go queue up the soundtrack in my iPod, because I could really use a little bit more theremin in my life this morning. You can find links to Rich's website, as well as everything else that we've been doing here on the show over at our website at monsterkidradio.net, which is also where our contact information is. Email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com, and our voicemail line is area code 503 479 MKR. If you have any feedback for the show, feel free to call it in or email it in. The music you're hearing right now is from the Outer Space Heaters from their album Desolate Surf. The song is called Signals. It appears with permission of the band. You'll be hearing the song in its entirety at the end of the show. You can find out more about the Outer Space Heaters over at their website, outerspaceheaters.bandcamp.com, or just look them up on Facebook. If you happen to run into them at a show or anything like that, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Somewhere else that Monster Kid Radio should send you is the Joy Cinema and Pub in Tigard, Oregon, over at 11959 Southwest Pacific Highway. Their website is thejoycinema.com. As I've mentioned in the past, they're doing a weekly series called Weird Wednesday, where they bring in a weird genre movie of some sort and show it for free at 9 p.m. on Wednesday night. You just pay for concessions. Upcoming movies include things like The Acid Eaters and Guess What Happened to Count Dracula. And on July 3rd, Monster Kid Radio will crash the Joy Cinema when they show Ega. Now, Monster Kid Radio Crash is an event where we all just get together, hang out, go do the same thing, go see the same movie, whatever. It's not an officially sanctioned event by whoever's showing the film. Although Jeff over at the Joy Cinema knows that we're planning on coming. We've done a couple of these in the past, like when we went to go see Invader from Venus or The Creature from the Black Lagoon. We're going to be doing another one next month when we go see King Kong at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland. But for now, put on your calendars. July 3rd, Monster Kid Radio Crashes, Ega from 1962, directed by Arch Hall Sr., starring Arch Hall Jr. and Richard Keel of Jaws from James Bond fame. If you're a member of our Facebook group or have liked our Facebook page, you'll find a link to the event for the Monster Kid Radio Crashes Ega. I haven't created the event yet. It'll be happening sometime this weekend, then you'll see it there. And you can RSVP. All right, let's dive into part two of our chat with Rich Chamberlain about the day the Earth stood still right about now. Now, Mike's first experience with this movie uh, came later in my development of a genre film fan. I'm a, I'm a little bit younger than Richard, uh, not not much, but I'm a little, <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit lo- younger than him. But I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of these types of movies, you know, horror movies growing up or whatever. So I was watching stuff like Star Wars. I was allowed to watch that. That was safe. Well, my experience with this movie actually started with Return of the Jedi because you've got the three characters in there named Klaatu, Barata, and is a Nick Two. In, in the Star Wars stuff, I don't remember. It's been years since I've seen Return of the Jedi, but that's where it first kind of popped up for me on the pop culture radar. And then, if, yeah. and then of course, it also gets referenced in Army of Darkness to kind of go back to how I opened this whole discussion with you. 
But between Return of the Jedi and Army of Darkness, I finally saw the day they're still on video. And I think it was the only time that I had seen it prior to watching it this morning before getting ready to record with you. Oh, wow. Even though it had been so long, at least 10, 15, hell, maybe even 20 years, I could still tell you the story. I could still break it down for you because it is so classic and it's so referenced and so many different parts of pop culture. I mean, I, I think I did see a clip of it in the movie, the explorers from the eighties, which, you know, directed by Joe Dante. Yes. Cause it's the, the image of Klaatu getting shot appears in that briefly in a montage sequence where the aliens are explaining to the kids that the aliens know that the humans all kill aliens. And this is why see, and they show them this montage of movies in which we are always fighting the aliens and killing them. Uh, but like I said, it's been so long since I had seen it as I'm watching it, I'm picking up on the little things here and there, but, I mean, it felt like me catching up with an old friend because it is so classic and iconic. You said you watched it as well just recently. And did did you say how long it had been since you had watched it prior to this? It had been a couple of years ago. I um, I had this on DVD uh, at some point in the last 10 years, and then it came out on Blu-ray a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, it, right when the remake came out, which I think was 2008. And right. You know the images. I mean, it's 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 a beautiful image even on the on the DVD, and it's not a huge significant upgrade uh, on on Blu-ray because the film is actually in really good shape already. But um, yeah, on the Blu-ray, it's it's visually stunning. And just revisiting it again this morning, I was just noting this is like a just it's a beautiful film from kind of top to bottom. It's uh, which is why it stands above the the rest of the films of, of the 1950s. There's a lot of great sci-fi films from that decade, but you've got competent actors you've got competent direction i mean robert Roth, uh, one of the hollywood's best with just a handful of films that are just very iconic when you got in in the genre of course robert wise directed star trek the motion picture in 1979 which is more appreciated now than it was when it came out in 79 oh yeah it's a better it's a better science fiction film than it is a star trek film it didn't have the heart that some of the other trek films had but Visually and, and thematically, it's 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 a much better science fiction film than than the rest of the other Star Trekies, and I'm probably automatically have just ejected myself from from most Trekkie stuff. No, you know what? I'm going to back but... you up on that. I think Star Trek: The Motion Picture, 1979, it is an excellent example of late 70s science fiction filmmaking. It's before they started getting all actiony with it. It, be, it was before the 80s sensibility kind of came into things. It is a very cerebral type of science fiction movie. So I got you back on that one. And I actually enjoyed it a lot more than most. So, Well, and, and again, music plays a big part in some oh, of the yeah. scenes in that movie. I mean, you've got uh, Jerry Goldsmith does such a marvelous score for that movie. And, and again, Robert Wise had some very long, lingering shots on you know the Enterprise as it goes into V'ger, which at the time, again, that wasn't the Star Trek I was used to. I remember thinking originally, that's just kind of boring in some of these sequences, but revisiting it just several years ago when they put out the new director's cut, um, I was like, yeah, this is definitely a different film, and, it, and it's better in many ways. Mm-hmm. Robert Wise also directed The Haunting, which is one of the all-time oh, yeah. best uh, ghost stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Haunting is just damn frightening in spots of that movie. So, I'm a big fan of... Uh, he did the Andro- yeah, I was about to say that. I was a big fan of the Andromeda strain, so... Yeah, yeah, I just so um yeah, just definitely uh and plus I didn't realize this actually. Uh I'm kind of surprised I didn't realize this I was doing research for this. He directed The Body Snatcher in 1945 with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. 
Nice. Uh, that was one of the first movies he directed. I did not realize that. He directed Curse of the Cat People, but I mean, he directed Karloff and Lugosi. I mean, that automatically, in my book, gives him some some cred that that all the other work that he did. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but when I revisited this on Blu-ray this morning, again, there's so many great extras. If you're choosing which way to go, I mean, you, you'd be happy to get a DVD. It, it, the picture's going to be great. And there are quite a few extras on the DVD, but the Blu-ray kind of goes above and beyond. There's some, some great documentaries on, well, there's a little kind of, there are many, you know, they're generally 20 to 30 minutes in length. They talk about Bernard Herrmann. Uh, there's uh, a great documentary um, on uh, Ed North. He did the the screenplay and where a lot of the, the, the social message was clearly Ed North's influence because he, he felt very passionately about those things. Uh, there's a great extra about uh, that Ed North did later on in life called, I think, Race to Oblivion, uh, just like a 35-minute documentary that he made, basically about how we were headed to, to social destruction. Definitely a bit dated, but interesting that he carried on that theme throughout his life. Uh, it's got a great making of directory. It's got a great documentary on flying saucers. Uh, definitely, highly recommend the Blu-ray uh, if you go out and get that. And I remember when I got it, I got a little... Gort metal figure that uh, a little extra that came oh, with it that sits prominently on my shelf. It's actually made of metal. It's not the usual little plastic or PVC thing that you get with TV. This thing is metal. You could bunk it on somebody's head and break their skull open. It's awesome. It stands about three inches tall. So, little fun little tidbit that I that I got courtesy of, of the Blu-ray purchase. So, man, now I need to get it on blue. <laughs> See, I I recommend yeah, it. I don't I don't own this movie physically. I just have a streamed copy that I picked up from Amazon. You can get it from Amazon. You can stream it at home, rent it or buy it that way. But yeah, you know, I still like to have the actual disc. And, and for the special features, I mean, for that very reason, it's definitely something. I well, and have. it's and you know we talked about how iconic this is. It, it is it's featured on the cover of of an, a marvelous book that uh, called Keep Watching the Skies, which is written by Bill Warren. It, it's uh, numerous editions on the book. The book I have is about, I kid you not, this thing is like two inches thick. Um, and it is American science fiction movies of the 1950s, two inches thick of nothing but 1950s sci-fi movies. And it's, it's, you know, the, the flying saucer and, and Klaatu prominent on the cover. That's just, uh, again, um, you know, how iconic this movie is and how it really stands out and above and beyond. And I think it's even, I can't remember the list, you know, it's one of those movie lists that that they maybe uh, American Film Institute, but they they rank this in I think number five in the top five most influential science fiction movies of all time. Right, and it, it deserves to be there for sure. Uh, you were mentioning keep watching the skies. I'm looking at an image right now of the cover of the most recent edition of that. The artwork's by Cary Gamble. You can find out more about him over at Monsterverse.com. He's a comic book publisher. He's the guy behind the Tales from the Grave comic, Bella Lugosi's Tales from the Grave. Uh, but yeah, to keep watching this guy's cover, I mean, you've got Gort, you've got uh, The Amazing Colossal Man, you've got, let's see, is that Robbie the Robot on there? I'm looking at all these here. <laughs> yeah, you got a version. Yeah. I've, got, I've got the version that came right before. Did you say Roman? I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, okay. Mon- Robot Monster, yes, as, <laughs> as uh, that that movie is very much in mind as of late. And and I, I said something the other day that unfortunately I I laughed hysterically, but my wife looked at me so odd. I, she told me to do something, and I responded to the uh, 
her saying, well, you know, I must, but I cannot, but I must. <laughs> she didn't get it. I found myself amused by it, and she just kind of shook her head. But, you know, I'm kind of used to that. She does that quite yeah, often. Yeah, so. I hear you, brother. <laughs> I hear you, man. You were saying you're talking about a bunch of those uh, sci-fi lists. Uh, Gort was inducted into the, into the Robot Hall of Fame back in 2006. So Gort himself has been listed on, on some lists as well. Gort, real quick, just to kind of talk briefly about him. Now, he was played by the doorman from Grauman's Chinese Theater, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, they, they, they talked about that in the documentary, actually. He was like seven foot seven. A very tall man. And he wasn't tall enough, actually. They had to put they had to put lifts on his shoes for a couple of the scenes. I'm thinking seven foot seven, not tall enough, but they wanted him bigger. But everything that I see online says that he's tall, but he wasn't very strong. So when he has to pick people up... Yeah. Yeah, they had to use wires. <laughs> there is one scene that's very prominent on the Blu-ray, and I'd never really noticed it until the Blu-ray actually is where he is is carrying Helen. And uh, yeah, it's very obvious that it's it. She's you see the strings very obviously for about yeah. three or four seconds. They they could have digitally removed that, and, and I I don't I don't want them to do yeah. that. You know, even though we would probably never saw that when it was originally on television, because you know, again, high def brings out a lot of things in movies that was never intended to be seen. I think that almost adds charm to the movie, though, and I don't want them to start sitting there and digitally altering things. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I want to see the movie as it was originally meant to be seen, and if that means seeing some things that I wouldn't have seen back in 51, I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was about to say, is that I feel like I love having them all restored, looking nice and pretty and pristine, but I don't mind seeing the wires here and there. You know, that's the one downside, is when you make everything look better... You're also going to make some of those, for lack of a better term, flaws look better as well. They're going to stand out more. So, uh, But yeah, Gort was played by Locke Martin, who would also turn up in things like the snow creature. Well, supposedly it was unconfirmed. Invaders from Mars. A few other genre movies here and there. Uh, he had some deleted scenes, The Incredible Shrinking Man. So I guess he did have a chance to work with you know some other studio genre films as well. So. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Uh, you know, he's kind of been in all these, all these films. I, didn't, I wasn't aware that he was in some of those other movies. So it's... Uh, Again, one of those little little hidden things that as a movie becomes iconic, exactly, uh, people start diving in. You start realizing all these little facts that uh, went on behind the scene. There, there's a subplot that apparently was in the script but never filmed between our, the relationship between Helen and Klaatu, which you get a little bit. I mean, towards the end, there's obviously, you know, she obviously feels a little something for him, but apparently in the script it was more. Uh, but they opted not to not to do. I guess having having a single mother. Uh, become romantically involved with a uh, an alien from outer space was not acceptable. <laughs> That's just too much. We draw the line at that. <laughs> we draw the line there. I was. Did you find it odd though that Bobby played such a big role in the movie, in the early part of the movie, and then he just disappeared? Yeah, it's like he is involved up until the point where he sees Clatoo sneaking to the flying saucer, and then he relays that information. He like hands the movie off to Helen at that point. Yeah, yeah he, he goes up the stairs, and that's the last you see of him. He's gone up the stairs, and all of a sudden, you know, Helen takes the takes the reins, and and which I guess made sense because she had kind of dismissed the character up to that point of, of Mr. Carpenter, aka Klaatu. But uh, I kind of wished we would have had at least maybe a final scene with Bobby, you know, in in Klaatu. It, it probably wouldn't have made sense the way that the, the script was written, but I do kind of feel like that was a a subplot that was just kind of abandoned. Yeah. Yeah, there is an uncomfortable, is it a cab ride with Klaatu and Helen at one point? It just, it feels like there might have been something more going on there that they could have explored, but they just didn't. So there's this awkward, almost moment of silence between the two. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, huh, are you going to go there? You know, yeah, I, I think- don't know. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, there, there are, there, there's a few plot holes yeah. in, in the movie that, that I think probably one of the most obvious. And again, yeah, I, it's not a nitpick about the film at all, but okay. Klaatu was under the, the helmet when he was there on the lawn and, but he was seen by the military and clearly you would have think that someone would have had a picture of him or something, but yet he's roaming around Washington and, and nobody seems to know what he, what he looks like even though people have actually seen his face. He seems to get around pretty freely. I would have thought that at some point, you know, the military would have, you know, they were so keen to shoot him as soon as he came out of the ship, but yet they seem to kind of not be as concerned about him roaming around Washington. I would have thought that they would have made more of an effort to get the image out of who we looked at. Now, obviously, if they would have done that, though, the movie would have been over a lot quicker than it was, but that's that's kind of an obvious plot hole for me that that is kind of overlooked a little bit but again it, it, that's a it's a minor nitpick because it if you do that then you then you please a lot of what your movie is no you're right and it, there is a sense for me that after he initially escapes the hospital everybody's panicking where's the spaceman where's the spaceman but a t- couple days go by and well, you know, we're kind of getting back to our regular life again you know if he didn't hurt anybody you know this is not as important anymore it's not as the forefront of the news. Yeah, and it seemed like the you only had a couple of guards guarding this alien spaceship right. and they kill a robot out of it. It's like, really? That's it? You got two guards who really aren't even paying attention to it until they hear hear a noise going on. You know, it's like that's that's your military presence as two guys. Again, that's kind of you know, it's like, Well, okay, we'll just go with it. <laughs> you know, again, that's that nineteen fifties script writing, you know, there's there's a few a few weaknesses that they did obviously cover when they did the remake in, in, in 2008. Um, I did not rewatch the remake. I was going to rewatch it and, and I will probably do so this afternoon. Um, and I don't want to talk much about the remake because it's not that good of a movie, but um, <laughs> I, I think, th- I think the remake, have you ever seen the yeah, remake? Brenda and I reviewed it a couple years back. Yeah, she liked it yeah, better than I, I did. It, it, it's, it suffers from the fact is that you're doing a remake of an iconic film that didn't need a remake in the first place. Yeah. Um, if a movie doesn't, it, is, is, is not able to date well, you know, um, if you're able to improve on the original film, I'm okay with the remake. Uh, however, if the original is, is virtually perfect, you know, which Day of the Earth Stood Still is, is perfect in a lot of ways, and, it's, and it holds up and is not dated entirely, then there's no point in doing a remake. And if you're going to do a remake, then you, you better be pretty darn impressive with it. And Keanu Reeves is not a lead actor. And he is the opposite of what they did with the, with the original. They went with an actor nobody would recognize. Well, what, what's the first thing you see when you see Keanu Reeves? Well, you know, immediately younger people are going to think, well, that's the dude from The Matrix. Right. Uh, so it immediately pulled you out of the, of the experience or they'll say, yeah, see, I, head, I go to know? Bill and I mean, Ted. I go to, well, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> so you can't go with a, with, they should have gone with a, with a, an unknown actor. Uh, and I stress the word actor who could actually have <laughs> done something with the role. Sorry, fans of Keanu Reeves. I mean, I, the movie as itself stands alone. The remake is okay, but, Comparing it to the original is doing almost a disservice to the original, putting it in the same sentence, in my opinion. Jennifer Connelly is a absolutely, I mean, I, hear me, she is an absolutely stunning actress. She is gorgeous to look at. 
However, her performance in the in the in the remake is very flat. And for me, the the thing that that ruins the remake is the the, the character. I mean, he's not called Bobby. I can't remember his name, but what's his name? Will Smith's son, Jaden Smith. Is that it? I hated him in the movie. He he needed to be smacked around a little bit. He was such an arrogant little kid, and it just it didn't work for me. There was just so many issues. But now I like I like the Gort, you know, in the remake to an extent. But again. I liked how he was portrayed better than the original as just being a little more subtle, but yet when he would display his powers, yeah, you knew this is somebody you don't want to mess with. I don't need this big, gigantic thing. You know, it, to me, was not the, the, as subtle and, and as nearly as good as it was in the original. So clearly one of those cases where the only way you can find any enjoyment in the remake is to totally disassociate yourself from the original. Once you see the original, unfortunately, you can't do that in doesn't really make the the remake um, as as good an experience as it could be is if you weren't familiar with the original. And that's all I'm going to say about the 2008 <laughs> Well, I, I will say this. Some reports uh, have indicated that Keanu Reeves insisted that the filmmakers of the remake allow him to say the words, Klaatu Brado Nikto, that apparently that was not going to be in the screenplay. And Reeves insisted that he be given the opportunity to say it. On camera, so respect to him for that because you can't have the day where the earth can sit still without that line of dialogue. You got to have that. But yeah, as far as remakes, it's not one that I've thought about. Even when you brought up let's do the day the earth still, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Then the remake did not even enter into it for me, and that's probably all I'm going to say about that. All right, so so we so we give the remake all of about five minutes. So move along. How long will you wait before you watch this movie again? You know, this is a movie that's kind of a go-to movie for me. Uh, there are some movies that I, I just I'm drawn back to, and, and I hadn't seen it for a lot of years before I saw it on DVD. And you know, there was like only really I think two or three years before I saw it on Blu-ray, and this has been probably two or three years since I saw it the first time. So I would say probably within the next couple of years, I'm going to bring this out again and and. Uh, just enjoy it for, for an hour and a half of just classic, you know, sci-fi. I, I put it along those films that, like for me, uh, Frankenstein, Brighter Frankenstein, those, some of those cinemal universal horror classics, I, I can watch those every year, every other year, and find enjoyment with it and find new little things all the time that I didn't realize, you know, the first time. And I mean, that's, that's when you see a movie so many times, that's when you start to enjoy it, is when you start seeing the little things that you didn't notice before. Uh, like the zipper on on Gort's suit, I never noticed that until I saw it this morning, and it was c- clearly unintentional. But there was a scene where the zipper was very mm-hmm. evident. Um, they had two versions of the suit so that you wouldn't see the zipper, but there was—I think it's in the scene where he's carrying Helen and the strings. You actually—it's the only time you see him from the front, and then they pan to the back. So they couldn't use one or two. You know, they had to use one of the suits. Um, that had the zipper in the front. So you kind of had to see it there. And that's fine. I don't want it digitally altered. It was just kind of a cool little little thing. So yeah, probably within the next couple of years, I, I will I will uh, break out the Blu-ray and, and enjoy it again. Well, I need to get it on disc. I need to get that Blu-ray. I've got to get it. So it's going to get added to my wish list. I will say that the cover of the Blu-ray is, is horrible. It is designed to look very similar like the, the 2008 remake. And it's a generic cover. Uh, it is not any of the iconic images. There, there's uh, the crowd 
a very generic crowd looking up at the spaceship yeah. with, uh, yeah, it's just, it, that bothers me. Use the original artwork. Or at least put Gort on there. Where's Gort? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it just, uh, it just did work for me. I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I and obviously that this tied in because they bill it as the original sci-fi masterpiece, but it was obviously, you know, this was released at the time that the remake was, so they're tying, tying it into the remake. Yeah. So, so, but, you know, uh, maybe that's, Besides that, besides a, a new cover needed, it's a fabulous Blu-ray. Highly recommend it. Maybe it's what we can be thankful for the remake for is every once in a while when a remake comes out of a classic movie that we all love and we scream sacrilege, you didn't need to do it. At least it puts a little extra attention on the original and maybe, maybe release of it, uh, an upgraded version of it, like in, in this case where it gets released on Blu-ray, something like that. Yeah, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, beyond this, that there's a, it would be ever be a more definitive version with the extras and stuff, unless you could find maybe some uh, material of, uh, you know, the actors. But they have got, they interviewed Billy Gray because uh, he's still alive. But I think pretty much everyone involved with the film is, is long since gone. I mean, Michael Rennie passed away quite a few years ago. His last film, his last film was uh, gone by a couple of different names, Assignment Terror and Dracula versus Frankenstein. It's the version, it's not the Dracula versus Frankenstein, oh. but it's actually... <laughs> It is one of the Paul Nashie films. Paul Nashie is in it. And, and Michael Rennie plays a scientist who is revived by, the, by these aliens to revive the monsters. And it's got Frankenstein and the Wolfman, and Paul Nashie plays his Vladimir Wolfman character in it. But it's a secondary character. It's not really a Paul Nashie film, but he's in it. And uh, sadly, though, it, it, it's odd to watch it. It's, it's really a bad movie. And it's hard to watch because it's not Michael Rennie's voice. Um, oh. This is the last movie he did before his death, and he was in front of emphysema. And uh, his his voice had to be dubbed. That's a shame. And so he actually still looked pretty good, considering it was like 1970, 71. But um, yeah, when you hear him talk, it's like, nah, it doesn't sound like Michael Rennie. Uh, it, that iconic voice that he had was was absent by that point. Uh, emphysema is something he struggled with, I think, for like the last 10 years of his life. Mm. So it wasn't something that had just happened. He he struggled with it for quite a few years. That's really a shame. And I don't think Patricia Neal did anything else genre-related. I, I certainly couldn't find anything that she ever kind of dipped into. She didn't, She just, uh, in the interview, she dismissed the movie originally. She thought it was just going to be another cheap sci-fi flick. But then she later realized what a wonderful film it is. And she, she became very, very proud of it, but she never did another, another film in the genre again. Uh, for me, the only other time I can honestly say I've seen her in anything, uh, was, uh, she was in the original Walton's movie in the seventies. And that's about as far away you can get from horror and sci-fi <laughs> as, as, as you could possibly get. And I think this will probably be the only time you'll hear the Waltons referenced on any sci-fi or horror podcast. <laughs> Ghost Story. She was in Ghost that's Story. I'm seeing here uh, in '81. Oh wow, I can't. But yeah, no, you're right. I... Most of the credits here are very non-genre. <laughs> yeah, very, very. I guess you can do the the Seven Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Richard Thomas was in The Waltons. He starred in Battle Beyond the Stars, oh. which also co-starred Sam Jaffe. There you go. There you go. Well done, sir. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I just thought of that as I'm sitting here looking at my notes. I was like, there you go, the connection. 
Well done. Well, Hugh Marlowe did some work, though. Hugh Marlowe did some things. He was like on Alfred Hitchcock Presents and you know, a few other things here and there. So we, we have some genre. Yeah, Earth versus the Flying Saucers was his other mm-hmm. big, big thing. That was uh, that's kind of a, a it's kind of the other end. Uh, Flying Saucers kind of just trying to blow yeah, everything. Yeah, wouldn't up, that be so. a great double feature, though? That would be. I remember very vivid memories of watching Earth versus the Flying Saucers on a Saturday afternoon. So. Uh, I was a kid back in the late 70s, pre-cable. Yeah, that's classic black and white sci-fi stuff that was right yep. up my alley at that time. So I have very vivid memories And of we're that. actually going to be covering Earth versus the Flying Saucers here in the near future when Scott from uh, 1951 Down Place, Disney, Indiana, he and I are going to talk about Earth versus the Flying Saucers very soon. So Awesome. Yeah. That, that'll be a great discussion. Yeah, that's a movie I have not, I have not seen in probably 10 years. So that, that'd be a movie I'd love to revisit. Well, you'll just have to check back and listen to an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio to hear that. I will do And that. we'll have to have you back for a future episode as well, man. This has been great. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, finally actually talking to you, not leaving a voicemail after all these <laughs> years. Man, we definitely are going to have you back on. In the meantime, though, if listeners want to follow along with what you're doing, again, the website address for your blog? MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. And I will often cover things that are new movies maybe that I'm watching on some of the other podcasts that as they're covering. So a lot of times, you know, will give me an idea of a movie to watch and I will write a review on it and certainly offer up all the reporting links and whatnot to all the various little internet uh, community that we've, that we've developed here. And, and uh, mostly what I've been concentrating on this year is working my way through uh, the Godzilla and Gamera films and Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock were my two priorities <laughs> this year to, to work through. I know. Yeah. Can we get any I was farther like, Wait a apart? Minute. This is not like peanut butter and chocolate. Hitchcock and kaiju. How, how does that work? Yes. Um, Hitchcock, again, a love for Hitchcock since, since as early as I can remember, Psycho. And I have had almost all of the Hitchcock films sitting on my shelf for several years and they kept getting overlooked. And I finally said, you know, 2013 is the year that I'm going to make my way through the Hitchcock filmology in chronological order, no less. Wow. So uh, it, it will not probably be done this year, but it's, it's, I'm starting that process. And as well, finding some of the harder to find Hitchcock films that are out of print. And then uh, with Godzilla, and, you know, I've seen the Godzilla films since I was a kid and I've, I've just started watching them again in, in, in you know, chronological order, and I threw in the Gamera films, which I'd never saw. Again, a lot of people grew up watching Gamera. I didn't have those movies. Never saw a Gamera film, believe it or not, until two years ago. It was my first time watching Gamera, but I know you are a latecomer to Godzilla, yeah. so I think you could probably relate to that. Sometimes the, the iconic films might have so much time in a given day, in a given week, and, and some things you just don't gravitate towards as quickly as others, but then once you discover it, you realize well, this is going to make me broke because now I have to go out and get all the Gamera and Godzilla films. So as I often thank Vince over at the B-Movie cast, whenever he throws out a movie that I don't have to go buy, then I'm like, I'm happy. And my financial consultant is also quite happy when I'm not searching out on Amazon or eBay for another film uh, to add to my bulging shelves downstairs. (laughs) No, I hear you, brother. I hear you. I had a great time chatting with Rich. You know, we called him a podcast legend over on our website. And and the truth is, I've been friends with Rich for a while now. 
Although our relationship started as his being a listener of Mail Order Zombie and a few other podcasts and calling in that sort of thing, I was thrilled to actually do a podcast proper with Rich. He's done a few episodes here and there with podcasts like to be moviecasts in the past, but this is the first time I've had a chance to chat with him. I had a really great time, and I plan on having him back on the show again at some point to talk about, well, some other movie of his choosing. And speaking of movies, new segment here on Monster Kid Radio. Don't have a clever name for it. We're just going to call it What I've Been Watching. Maybe at some point we'll come up with some clever theme music or something like that. Basically, I just want to talk briefly about some of the classic movies, movies that are relevant to Monster Kid Radio that I've been watching within the past week or so. Talk a little bit about it, share my thoughts, that sort of thing. And first, I want to talk about the 1956 classic, The She-Creature. I had seen this movie once, years ago. I don't remember when, I just know that I've seen it. But it's been a long time, so I decided to go ahead and pop it back in. Actually, I didn't mean to sit down to watch this one. I actually wanted to watch The Day the World Ended, which is the movie packaged on the double feature release of the DVD with The She-Creature. It came out as part of the Roger Corman cult classics line. Because there are two movies on this disc, it's pretty bare bones. There are no special features to speak of. And, you know, like I said, I I really wanted to watch The Day the World Ended, and I'll get to that. But, you know, I saw The She-Creature, and I thought, you know... It's been a long time. I'm going to have to check this out. My memories of this movie are much different than what the movie itself is. I did not realize that the she-creature itself is not in the movie very long at all. In fact, I think I saw the she-creature itself more in the 1959 film Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow, which I just watched for the first time earlier this year. That film's from 1959, and it's about the Hot Rod Gang doing some things and then they have a dance at a house that might be haunted and the she creature shows up played by paul blaisdell who actually did the creature design and created the costume for the she creature it's a great looking costume i just wish that i had seen it more in the film itself although i completely understand wanting to try to hide the monster that sort of thing that said being part of the american international pictures line i'm a little surprised we didn't get more in your face with the monster itself now that's not saying that i was disappointed in the movie in fact i really enjoyed it i think director edward l Kahn did a great job and our real monster the real villain of the she creature is dr carlo lombardi played by chester morris he is fantastic i don't remember him being such a standout villain in this thing i mean his eyes the way he looks the menace In his gestures and his presence, he's got this evil, oozy charisma. He's not slimy. He's not quite slick. He's just a presence. And he is so good in this thing. I wish I could have seen more with Dr. Lombardi. In fact, a Dr. Lombardi versus, well, anybody really would be a great film, I think, with or without a she-creature. I mentioned the DVD release. It's pretty bare bones, and I don't know if this is a function of the DVD or the print that they used, but I do feel like, especially at the real changes, there were some glitches. You heard that boop that you sometimes get at a real change, or at least you used to at a real change when movies actually showed film on a reel-to-reel system versus a platter system. You got a little bit of that. You got a little scratchy at times. But then again, I, I don't know if that's the print or just who was paying attention in the studio the day that they were dumping the print to DVD or making the masters. I don't know. It didn't really take a lot out of the movie for me. 
I did think the movie was a little dark in spots, but a lot of it takes place at night. And I'm sure part of that was by design because one of the things you do to kind of hide the seams and the zippers up the back of your monster suits is shoot at night or shoot underwater or shoot in a less than ideally lit condition. I'm glad I watched it again. It was fun. And, you know, I'm really starting to think I need to learn more about Paul Blaisdell. Just like I need to learn more about Charles Gamora, who is the legendary monkey man, ape suit actor of Hollywood of the 30s, 40s. Did he work into the 50s? I don't know. See, that's why I need to learn more about him. I learned a little bit more about him in watching the documentary, The Phantom of the Opera, Unmasking the Masterpiece. This is from director Cortland Hull of The Witch's Dungeon fame. Now, this is a documentary that I stumbled across on Kickstarter at some point, I believe, last year. They were looking for completion funds to put this thing together. I was really excited to help support that, and in doing so, I get a copy of the DVD. I'm sure it'll be available at some point online through other channels, that sort of thing. Maybe even making the film festival circuits. If you get a chance to watch it, I highly recommend it. You will learn something. It's just over 100 minutes long, and it features interviews with Tom Savini, Daniel Roebuck, Ron Chaney, Carla Lemley. It's a great documentary. It moves along at a pretty quick pace. You're going to learn a lot, even if you think you know a lot about Phantom of the Opera, and I thought I did. You're still going to find something of value in this documentary. I mentioned earlier learning a little bit about Charles Gamora. I had no idea how involved he was in movies like The Phantom of the Opera or Hunchback. I had no idea how involved he was in classic Hollywood, not just as an ape suit actor. He was a sculptor and did some production design work and things like that. I, I had no idea. I need to learn more about the man. I mean, my knowledge of Charles Gamora comes from an article that I read in a magazine called Big Old Face Full of Monster, which unfortunately only had two issues. And I think at one point there was a Kickstarter campaign to do a documentary about him. But back to this particular documentary. It is pretty heavy on Lon Chaney Sr., as it should be. I mean, Lon Chaney Sr. is the quintessential Phantom of the Opera, if you ask me, or pretty much any fan of the films. Now, it does touch on the follow-up version of the film uh, made in color by Universal in the 40s. It also touches a little bit on the Hammer film. It doesn't really talk too much more about other versions of the movie. It does mention the Robert Englund version of the film. It does mention the Dario Argento version of the film. It does talk a little bit about a couple of TV adaptations as well as the Phantom of the Paradise. But for the most part, it's very Longini senior heavy. Again, as it should be. It never once mentioned that at one point Lon Chaney Jr. was up to play the role of the Phantom in Universal's color version of the film from the 40s. And I don't know if that's something that I made up. I thought at one point I had read or heard in an interview with somebody that Chaney Jr. was supposed to play the Phantom, but they just couldn't make it work scheduling-wise. If that's not the case, then forget what I just said. But if that is the case, man, how awesome would that have been? The documentary also doesn't take a very favorable view of the Hammer Films version of the movie, which I actually quite like. I'm a big Hammer Films fan. In the last episode of Monster Kid Radio, you heard a promo for 1951 Down Place, the Hammer Films podcast that I produce with my good friends Scott and Casey. So, of course, I'm going to be a little bit more defensive of the Hammer Films, but I think the Herbert Loam performance of The Phantom in that film is fantastic and is underrated. Also, this documentary spends more time than I would have thought 
on the musical version of the film. Now, when the musical version started making the rounds, and I'm thinking this might have been in the early 90s, I could be mixing up my dates, but I believe in the early 90s, at least where I was living at the time, Phantom was becoming very popular with the girls and the guys who wanted to get with the girls. And, and that's whatever. I took this very... Phantom of the Opera is a monster movie. It's a horror movie. It's not a love story kind of approach. Because I was a dumb high schooler, I didn't know any better. Whatever. I've since seen Phantom on the stage. It's pretty amazing. But it is a completely different beast. It's not a horror story the way that we kind of view the original Phantom of the Opera or the Hammer Films version or the color version from the 40s or Robert Englund's version, which actually I kind of like. So... There's a part of me, the 16-year-old Derek's kind of bristling a little bit when they spent so much time talking about the Broadway version, the musical version of Phantom of the Opera. Although, I do appreciate what we learned about the makeup. And it never occurred to me how difficult it is to sing wearing this stuff on your face for two and a half, three hours at a stretch. So, you know, I learned something, gained a little bit of respect for the musical, but as a monster kid, Phantom of the Opera is a horror movie for me. It's a monster movie first with Lon Chaney Sr. playing the perfect, the ideal Eric, the Phantom of the Opera. I do recommend you guys check this one out. I'm really excited to see this one get some more exposure. Like I said, I'm hopeful it'll start making the festival rounds and will be available for a wider release at some point. In the meantime, maybe head over to the Witch's Dungeon website over at preservehollywood.org. See if they have anything over there about it. There will be a link to that in the show notes. Now, these guys are the same guys who made the documentary, The Aurora Monsters, the model craze that gripped the world. Now, The Aurora Monsters documentary is a little bit more humorous. You know, you got Zachary doing his thing. He's joined by Gorgo the Gargoyle as they're making models, and then they go to these interview pieces here and there. Daniel Horn appears in that documentary. It's a great documentary. I'm not downplaying it. It's just that the Phantom of the Opera documentary is a completely different beast. But they're both good. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, big thanks to Rich Chamberlain for joining us here on the show. And thank you for listening, reviewing us on iTunes, sharing us on Facebook, telling your friends, spending some time with us. And we look forward to spending more time with you next week when we are joined by author, game designer, Stephen D. Sullivan. We're going to talk about a Ray Harryhausen film. And next week will actually be the first in a three-week stretch in which we talk about Ray Harryhausen. I'd like to mention, in all fairness, these episodes that you're going to hear over the next three weeks were all recorded before the passing of Ray Harryhausen. So we never really talk about his passing during those recordings, although I think it's probably safe to say that without Ray Harryhausen's influence on cinema, period, not just the genre cinema, but on cinema, period, none of us would be the monster kids that we are today. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that does not extend to the song Signals by the Outer Space Heaters from their album Desolate Surf. See you next week. (laughs) 